0: Rhetorical Theory, Part 1. Rhetoric is a woefully misunderstood area. A popular textbook on critical thinking underscores this uh, commonly held belief by insisting that, I quote, rhetoric tries to persuade primarily through the artful use of language, end quote. This uh, idea is contrasted with the idea that Arguments try to persuade through logic and reason. In other words, rhetoric is seen by this author and by many people as some artful, non argumentative, illogical, or even anti logical use of words designed to persuade or influence an audience by pushing emotional buttons. This misunderstanding may be pervasive. It may be common, but it is all the more urgent to clarify and correct. The study of rhetoric, or the, the need to delve deeply into the nature of rhetoric, fell into full swing sometime after the democratic revolution in Athens of about 450 BC. The law courts and the political assembly were founded on letting every citizen speak and vote. For example, The first 6,000 citizens who turned up at the assembly formed the government of the day. There could easily be a different set of people the next day. There was no political party guiding things. Essentially, anyone could get up and try to persuade the others to do a certain action. Do we declare war on Sparta? Do we wipe out the island of Lesbos? Do we save the island of Lesbos? The law courts were similar. Juries of 201, 301, or 501 were made up of randomly assigned people. There was no prosecutor, no judge deciding what kind of evidence would be allowed. There were no lawyers. Person A would accuse Person B of doing something wrong or something damaging to the state. Person A had to persuade the jury that Person B had done something bad while person B had to persuade the jury of his innocence. There is a call to action by both parties. There is a goal, the goal of persuasion, vote for conviction or vote for acquittal. The skill of persuading others to do a certain action lies at the heart of the political system in Greece. Political power depended on it, and given the openness of the legal system, The lack of written laws, the lack of prescribed punishments, a person's life could easily depend on the ability to persuade. This situation created a market demand for instruction, and the sophists filled it well. They offered to teach the art of rhetoric to anyone who could pay. These sophists were not interested in truth, but merely winning people over to whatever point they wanted. If this were the end of the matter, the idea expressed at the start here would have merit. The rhetorical art of the sophists would appear to be just the art of manipulating people through their emotions, saying whatever needed to be said to win the day. But it is not the end of the matter, and such a a shallow understanding does not do justice to the art of rhetoric let's go back to the first detailed text on rhetorical theory. How rhetoric works. What is going on when a speaker persuades an audience to do something? Aristotle wrote about it, and his book on rhetoric is still a major influence in rhetorical theory. Aristotle is looking at the history and the development of public speaking in Greece. His theory is framed around three aspects, a speaker, an audience, and a message. This can also be augmented easily or modernized by the terms writer, reader, and message. Rhetoric comes from the word rhetor, which means speaker in Greek. I will use the word speaker in the context of rhetoric here. Just remember, it will apply to a writer as well in our modern context. These three points give us his famous Rhetorical triangle. We have a speaker. Who is this person standing before us, asking us to do something? Why should we listen to that person? How does that person project credibility, trustworthiness? The Greek word for this projection is, is ethos, the projection of character. The projection of ethos is called an ethos appeal. The group of people standing, listening to the speaker, the audience, must be moved emotionally to connect with the speaker. The speaker must somehow connect with the needs and wants and desires of that audience. The audience must want to help the speaker. They must want to do the action that is being requested. The Greek word for this emotional connection is pathos. Connecting with the audience is called the pathos appeal. Lastly, we have the words that are used, the message. The speaker needs to construct a message or arrange the words to do three things. The words of the message must have the effect of resonating with the audience on an emotional level. The words are making a pathos appeal. Secondly, the words or message must support or establish the character of the speaker i.e., they must help build the ethos appeal. Thirdly, the words or the message must be framed logically. And the Greek word that encompasses many of these ideas is, is logos. It's a complicated word, this logos appeal. The word logos can mean a word or words or reason, but I think in this context it is best understood as the logical organization of, of all of the words taken as a whole. So the famous rhetorical triangle consists of three things, three types of appeals, ethos, pathos, and logos. But I will mention there is a fourth element in this uh, rhetorical situation, and that is the call to action. A persuasive speech Needs to contain a call to action. There must be something that the audience must do. A speech which asks for a change of opinion, for example, is empty. There is no way to verify that a speech has succeeded in its goal unless the audience takes action. It is only through deeds that the persuasion can be verified as completed or verified as successful. Aristotle sums this complex of ideas with this definition. Rhetoric is the techne, the art, the skill, the ability of finding or inventing in any given situation or case the available means of persuasion. The available means of persuasion, he means, the modes of appeal the ethos appeal, the pathos appeal, and the logos appeal. These are the three tools that we have for persuasion. What needs to be done in those three modes to make the audience act in the desired way? For example, in a modern context, you might have a job interview. Aristotle is uh, very useful to uh, consider in this context. When you walk into the room, your appearance is establishing an ethos appeal. Your poise reflects confidence. Your choice of clothing will tell the audience whether or not you understand their expectations. Your facial expressions and tone of voice will add layers of meaning to your ethos appeal, either in a positive or negative way. Note, these aspects of nonverbal communication also add to the pathos appeal. The audience needs to like you, needs to see you as someone who will fit in with their group, The wrong attire, for example, will exclude you very quickly. What is your logos appeal? Initially, it's your cover letter and your resume. You establish your ability and your qualifications to do the work. You're making an ethos appeal. You probably made a pathos appeal by connecting with their needs and wants and expectations. In the interview, you will be building on your pathos appeal by saying what they want to hear, by resonating with them emotionally your words, and how you say them is, at the very same time, building your ethos appeal. Note that these three modes of appeal are interconnected and synergistic. They need to work together for one goal, to persuade the audience to act. In this case, the action is to hire you, I will delve a little more deeply um, into how these modes of appeal work in the next podcast.